Someone once said, when you judge or criticize another, one, another person, it says nothing about that person. It merely says something about our own need to be, criti- to be critical. There's something within our human nature that feels the need to criticize someone who we don't like or we, who we don't agree with, whether it be indirectly or, or directly. Now, if you've been watching any of the political conventions these past couple weeks, you know that it's been everywhere. Um, whether it's in the outside of those conventions, whether it's in the inside of the conventions, everybody's criticizing somebody. Um, maybe even at work, in your places of home or wherever, it, wherever you're at, there has been cr- criticism towards one, one of these people, maybe several of these people, um, and with their political views or whatnot. Um, but when you think about it, when you think about it, there's, it's rare when criticism will actually produce any significant changes in behavior in the person being criticized. Now here's a story to illustrate this point. The story is told of a judge who had frequently ridiculed, who was frequently ridiculed by a conceited lawyer. When asked by a friend why he did not rebuke his assailant, he replied, in our town, it lives a widow who has a dog. And whenever the moon shine, it goes outside and barks all night. Having said that, the magistrate shifted his conversation to another subject. Finally, someone asked, but judge, what about the dog and the moon? Oh, he replied, the moon went on shining, that's all. You see, the passages we're about to read, we're gonna be reading today, you will see how quickly, quickly the religious leaders began to criticize Jesus because he wasn't playing by the rules, by the extra rules that they had established and how Jesus, had, how Jesus began to redefine those rules, those, those rules that they had established, those extra rules. You'll also see the difference on how Jesus answers the questions coming from the religious leaders and those questions coming from just regular folk. Because in this, again, we, what we've seen here is he's answering the question from the Pharisees and the scribes, and you'll also see how he's answering questions from just the people. What I hope that, what I'm hoping for when you leave here today is that, is that you'll understand that Jesus came to redefine the misinterpreted rules that religion often distorts and confuses. So turn with me to Mark chapter 2, starting in verse 15. Mark chapter 2. It's going to be on page... 552, I believe, in, in the Bibles in front of you. Mark chapter 2, starting in verse 15. While he was reclining at the table in Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were also guests with Jesus and his disciples because there were many who were following him. When the scribes of the Pharisees saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard this, he told them, Those who are well don't need a doctor, but the sick do need one. I did not come, I did not come to call the righteous, but, sinner, but sinners. If you recall, in, last week's, in the last passage we covered last week, Jesus had met a tax collector named Levi. And then when he comes up to him, he tells him, hey, follow me. And we saw that Levi did exactly that. 
he left his old life behind in that tax collector's booth and started to follow Jesus. So what we read, up, what we read about here is what happens immediately afterwards. Now Levi, and later, you'll, later he's going to be called Matthew, just like Simon is later called Peter right here, um, Levi, um, we, we, he's known as Levi. Levi invites James, John, Andrew, and Simon, and whoever else is with them to his house for dinner. Now, I suspect that Levi was one of those guys that when he met new people, when he met new friends, he just was, it was easy for him just to have them over and come over and have, you know, to have dinner. He was also probably one of those guys that had an open door policy whenever he was home. Now, I'm not sure if you've ever met any or have any friends like that, but I, but I have. I've met several people like that. You, you just, you, you meet them, and then all of a sudden they're like, hey, come over to my house and let's hang out, let's, let's have dinner. Um, this, it, it, it tells me that Levi had that gift, that, that spiritual gift of hospitality. He was a very hospitable person, and you can see that he just always attracted a crowd. So maybe for Levi, as a brand new follower, it wasn't awkward at all to have Jesus and his disciples over while people he once associated or people he had, was associ had associated with also stopped by to hang out. Now I think this is a situation we see here. Um, what was supposed to be a dinner for just Jesus, for Jesus, Levi, and his disciples turned out to be this large dinner party. I mean, it turned out to be just a huge, I can imagine a, a block party here in this, in this house. You see, you see, Jesus was in the house of Levi as a guest. He came as a guest, just as, as a guest of Levi. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, he, this, he found himself eating with not just Levi, but he found himself eating with people that were known to have questionable ethical and moral values. Now he didn't walk into that house with the intent of being a part of what was going to take what was going to take place there just to fit in. Rather he stepped into that house believing that whoever was there would receive the gift that he was offering them. Also now if Jesus was concerned about his reputation he could have politely excused himself and left. But he didn't leave. He stayed there and got to hear some of the, some of their, some of the craziest stories probably he's, he's ever heard from these people. And he got to also, I really believe he got to share with them the hope that's found in the good news that he came to deliver. Now let me be clear. Jesus being there didn't mean that he accepted or condoned their sinful behavior. It also doesn't mean, and it doesn't even, it, and it never says that he partied it up like a rock star when he was there. It doesn't mean that he was there and just was like, okay, well, I'm here. I might as well make the most of it and, and just partake in, in, in the behaviors and the attitudes. No. What I want you to understand that Jesus was there as a shining light in a dark place. He understood the situation he was in and made the most of it by telling them that, that re, telling them about repentance and their need for forgiveness. Now again, let me ask you, have you ever been in that situation? You're just hanging out at a friend's house and all of a sudden other people come by and then the next thing you know, you're hanging out with your, you find yourself in a company of people that 
you've never met or you never would have associated with. Now I have, and I know how strange and awkward it can be, but for the sake of not appearing disrespectful or rude, I stuck around and I got to meet and talk to some of the most interesting people I've ever met. Now, sometimes God may put you in a place or in a situation that may be awkward or uncomfortable for you. You're just there and you just, all of a sudden, you just even know how you got there. But God, but with God, there is no coincidence. It may, be, it may very well be that God wants to use you in that place to be a bright light by sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ to unbelievers. Don't be so quick to get out of that situation because you have a reputation to uphold or a reputation to maintain because the people, because the people there are beneath you. You feel like it's just, you know, these people, I'm way better than these people. These people, I, I haven't, I, there's, I, they're low class and they're sinners and they're horrible and and you know and i mean don't be so quick god can be using you god may want to use you there in that situation among those people now i do want to warn you about purposely putting yourself in places or in situations that you have no business being in or being a part of now there i don't want you to be confused this is a big difference the results of doing that could be disastrous for you, for others, and could cause irreparable damage to your witness and testimony of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, it's very easy, and I know because back in my younger days, I used to think this way, and, and yeah, let me, let me go here, let me go there, because, you know, I, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to witness and I'm going to be part of what's, you know, and, and, and try to be that light. But what ended up being good intentions, my good intentions, ended up, again, being disastrous. disastrous. Um, you know, I, I can think of so many stories of, of that happening, but I learned from that. And that's what I'm saying is that you have to be careful. You have to use wisdom, discernment about being where you're at now if i know that if i'm in a place where i could be tempted easily to do something i have to get myself out of that situation however again i know that if i'm in a strange and awkward situation and i'm like around people that that i don't normally would have met or i wouldn't have never met or hung out with maybe again god is using me there wants to use me there to preach the gospel and just to share the love of Jesus Christ. Verse 16 then tells us the scribes and the Pharisees saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors. My question is, what were they doing there? What were they doing around Levi's house? Were they there to see what this party was all about? Were they there because they just they saw this party and they weren't invited and they just got jealous and were like, how come we're not there? How come we're not partying? Were they, you know, just being those looky-loos? Or were they there to keep an eye on Jesus in order to find something to accuse him of? Now, I think it was the second option. I think it was the second reason. In my experience, you see, the, in my experience, the more open I've been with my faith, the more I've come to realize that I'm being watched, I'm being examined and judged by those who believe I'm being disingenuous, or have ulterior motives. As a Christian, there's going to be people out there. 
There's going to be people out there who are waiting for you to slip up and fail. There's going to be people out there who are just waiting to see for you, for you to make a mistake and to call you out on it. And, and that's where, again, we just have to be careful about what we're saying, what we're watching, what we're doing, who we're hanging out with. Because it's very easy for people to criticize, very easy for people to judge, especially when it comes to our faith. We see that a lot. I've experienced it, and maybe you have as well. So somehow the scribes and Pharisees find a way to get to some of Jesus' disciples, and they ask them this question. Why does he eat with sinners and tax collectors? Or in other words, why is he eating with those people? Why is he eating with those degenerates? Why is he eating with those, with those sinners? Here again, we see the scribes and Pharisees making objectionable disputes without understanding all the facts. Yet I couldn't think of a better way anyone could have answered the way Jesus did. He tells them, those who are well don't need a doctor, but the sick do need one. I didn't come to call the righteous, but the sinners. There's a couple things I think we can learn from these three verses. The first one, first thing we can learn is use whatever situation God has put you in to bring Him glory. If it seems that you found yourself in an unpleasant situation surrounded by difficult people, God may have you there as a light in a dark place, as a light in a dark room. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 16, let your light shine before men so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. You see, God doesn't want you to hide that bright fire that's burning within you. He wants to use that fire so he can consume others with it. Let me repeat that. You see, God doesn't want you to hide the bright fire that burns within you. He wants to use that fire so he can consume others with it. We're told in Acts 13, 47, For this is, the, this is what the Lord has commanded us. I have made you a light for the Gentiles to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Now, the second thing we can learn from, this, from these three passages is that Jesus Christ knows how to bring comfort, he, healing and comfort to sinners. Like a good doctor, like a good physician, Jesus knows when we need a band-aid and when we need major surgery. Psalm 147.3 says that God heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. Now this isn't just for the Christians, but for also those who are willing to come and seek His healing touch. God said through Isaiah the prophet, Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be afraid, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will hold on to you with my righteous hand. Now that's how he responded to, to, uh, to the scribes and Pharisees. Now let's see how he responds to the questions by regular people. Read with me starting in verse 18. 
Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. People came and asked, why do John's disciples and the Pharisees' disciples fast, but your disciples don't fast or do not fast? Jesus said to them, the wedding guests cannot fast while the groom is with them, can they? As long as they have the groom with them, they cannot fast. But the time will come when the groom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, otherwise a new patch pulls away from the old cloth, and the worse and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, otherwise the wine will burst the skins, and the wine will be lost as well as the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskin. Traditionally, there were two major fasts that the Jewish people observed every year. There was Yom, Kipp Yom Kippur, also known as the Day of Atonement. And this is the only fast that's mentioned in, in the Torah, in the Old Testament. It's found in Leviticus 23, verses 26 to 32. The other is Tisha Ba'av, or the ninth of Av. This day commemorates the anniversary of the destruction of both the first and second temples in Jerusalem. Luke 18 tells us that somehow during this time, during the time of Jesus, fasts were now being practiced twice a week. So it had, it had changed from it being a, a yearly observance twice a year to now, um, by the time of Jesus, people were fasting twice a week. These in these fasts, there were certain physical and dietary restrictions that were to be, that had to be maintained, that were to be maintained. These ritual fasts were well known and commonly practiced. Everybody knew about them. It was so common that even the disciples of John the Baptist were practicing them. So that's why we see the people asking Jesus, well, John's disciples are fasting. The Pharisees, the religious people, are, everyone's fasting. But your disciples, you guys, you guys aren't fasting. What, what's going on? Why, why aren't you fasting? Now, Jesus could have stood there and, and rebuked them for their criticism, for what they were doing, but he understood that these people were, you know, the people were just lost. They were, they were sheep needing a leader, needing to understand what's going on, what's happening, needing, needing direction, needing just that guidance. So he responds to them in a totally different way that, that he responds to these religious leaders. If you remember, if there, now, and, and also if there was anyone who understood the significance of fasting, it was Jesus. I mean, in chapter 1, we see Jesus going out to the desert and fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. I mean, I know that I couldn't, I, I can barely fast for a day. You know, imagine 40 days, 40 nights. But he did it for a reason. Was, there was a, a, a reason why he did that. There was a, a it was significant. There was a significance to it. Now, again, I, I recommend you going back to, to one of the Gospels of, or Mark chapter one and reading exactly what happened. But what happened during that time? I mean, Jesus understood what fasting meant and what it was all about. I don't believe. I don't believe Jesus was dismissing fasting he wasn't he wasn't saying oh it's no big deal it's you know forget about it but rather he was illuminating that there was a time and a place for fasting 
So in order to clarify why his disciples weren't fasting, he gave him three illustrations. The first illustration he used is, is that of an illustration of, of a groom's weddings, wedding guests. Again, um, with Jewish celebrations uh, during this time, they were week-long joyous celebration. It was just partying. Um, there was all kinds of festivities. And then, you know, well, well, these parties were, were just to, to celebrate here what was going on. And then it just would be over. The, the groom would leave, the bride would leave, and, it's just, and, and that was it. Jesus' physical presence was supposed to be a time of rejoicing and celebration because he was the groom. How could, how could the guests of the groom be fasting when the groom is with them? Again, think of this joy celebration. Why would they fast? Why would, why would they spend this time just, in, in, like, again, a time of, of, of you know, repentance? They, they wouldn't. It would just be, again, a time of celebration. The groom is with them. They were celebrating along with the groom. Here also we see the first time Jesus indicating that his physical presence would be temporary. He knew that when the time would come, when the groom would be taken away. And then, and then once he's taken away, then the fast could begin. But not right now. Not right now. Again, he's there. He's doing ministry. He's living. He's giving people the, this message of hope, this message of, of salvation. And, you know, and, and, and so there was no way that fasting was required or needed to be done. Now, the second illustration he gave them was that of an illustration of new and old patch, patches of cloth. His point here was that his mission was not to maintain the status quo, but rather bring a better and clearer understanding of it. His new message of forgiveness, redemption, reconciliation wasn't meant to coincide with the old preconceived religious notions. You see, it was just incompatible. It was incompatible with the old message, the new message he was offering, and the old message it was just, it, it was incompatible with each other. You see the message Jesus, you see the message of Jesus is the new patch that works best if it's sewn onto a new garment, which is a person's transformed heart and mind. The third illustration Jesus uses is that of old and new wineskins. When wine is poured into new, when wine is poured into new wineskins, the fermentation process and everything going on within that wine would typically expand these wineskins. So it would make them, it would, it would make them bigger and, and wider. If new wine was poured into old wineskins that were already used and expanded, that fermentation will just continue to happen there and, and eventually those wineskins would burst. Jesus was telling them that he had come not merely to reform Judaism, but to present previously unrevealed truth. He, 
he was pouring new wine into the, into the wineskin of truth. Now, either that wineskin was going to be a new wineskin or it was going to be old and used wineskins. I believe that if you begin to allow Jesus to come into your life, it changes and transforms the way you perceive the world, the way you perceive yourself and the world we live in. You become that new patch now. You become that new wineskin. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. All things have passed away, and look, all things have become new. As a new creation in Christ, your new life as a born-again Christian will be incompatible, will be completely incompatible with, the li- with your old life that you used to live. We're told to shed off our old life, to shed it off and put on the new. This is what Paul told the believers as in, in, at Ephesus. Put off concerning your former conduct, the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Now going back to the wines, the patches in the wineskin, let me ask you, what do you think happens when you sew a new patch into old material? If the repaired garment is washed, the patch would shrink and pull away, resulting in a worse tear. God wants to create a new you and so on to sow on a new life in order to make you more if useful and effective. And what do you think would happen if you were to pour if God were to pour his holy spirit into a person that continues to remain as an old and used wineskin? In time that wineskin will burst and that wineskin and it, all its contents will be useless. It, 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 would, it just would burst onto the ground and, and everything about it wouldn't be any good. God wants to pour the new wine of his Holy Spirit into you. He wants to pour his Holy Spirit into each and every one of you. But you got to be that new wineskin for him to do that. And in order to be that new wineskin, you have to be born again. Now read along with me as we close out this chapter. Starting in verse 23. On the Sabbath, he, Jesus, was going through the grain fields, and his his disciples began to make their way, picking some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, Look, why are they doing this? Why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? He said to them, Have you never heard what David and those who were with him did when he was in need and hungry? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abathar, the high priest, and ate the sacred bread, which is, not lawful, which is not lawful for anyone to eat except the priest, and also gave some to his companions. Then he told them, The Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Therefore the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. 
In order to explain why these Pharisees believe that Jesus and his disciples were violating the Sabbath, I want to turn back to the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy 23:25, it says, When you enter a neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the heads of grain with your hand, but you may not put a sickle to your neighbor's grain. You see, the corners of the fields were left, the grains in the corner of the fields were left for the poor to gather. And anyone could go into the field and take what he could eat. He just couldn't, he couldn't put a sickle to it and collect, you know, bundles of it. The Pharisees, what they, were, they weren't questioning the legality of their, of, of, of their eating the grain, but they were questioning the disciples' actions on the Sabbath. According to the fourth commandment, the Sabbath was to be a rest, a day of rest from all work and was to be kept as a holy day. And also according to Exodus 34:21, it says, You are to labor six days, but you must rest on the seventh day. You must even rest during plowing and harvesting times. By the time we get to the scene and by the time all these religious put, leaders put on additional rules and put on all these additional restrictions, what we see, what we see is what is and, what is and isn't allowed on the Sabbath. And for them, even picking grain, even picking these heads of grain in this field was a violation, was a violation of the Sabbath, of the, of the Sabbath. Their argument was that picking the grain constituting, constituted harvesting. Rubbing the kernels between their palms was threshing. And blowing the shaft was winnowing. So do you see how extreme they had gotten when it came to the rules and regulations of, of just not... And that just was the Sabbath. Can you imagine all the other ones? There was just so many more other restrictions that they had put. And this is through the centuries, this is through generations. New restrictions were being put on. So you see why it was just difficult for anyone to ma maintain these rituals, you know, these requirements that God was asking for the people to maintain. And Jesus saw this and he understood this. And this is, again, one of, another reason why he came down here, why he came to us just to fix all these things that just were broken with the system, with the religious system, with the, these people that were just making these rules. So you see in the eyes of these scribes and the Pharisees, the disciples were working. They were working and violating the Sabbath. Now before answering their question, Jesus draws out a historical event from the life of David, from the life of King David, to back up what he and his disciples were doing. The event from the life of David is found in the beginning of 1 Samuel chapter 21. I won't get into it. I mean, it's, 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 it's not that long, but I would recommend, again, that you read it. It's a good story. It was during a time that David was running from Saul, and he and his companions were, were just famished. They were hungry. David came to the tabernacle at a city called Nob and asked the priest there if he had any food. 
The priest told them that the only food available was the holy bread that was consecrated, that was to be separated, and only the priest could eat it. Nonetheless, the bread was given to David and his companions. Now the point Jesus was trying to make, now what is the point that Jesus was trying to make? Drawing out this story. Firstly, and the most obvious, is that the human need for food always has priority over rituals. I mean, if I'm starving, if I see someone starving and I'm required and, and, and I need to take this bundle of food and take it a mile or two to, to get it to him and the Sabbath tells me not to do it, what's the right thing to do? What's the moral, moral and ethical thing to do? The need for food will always have priority over rituals. Now his second point is seen in the answer that he gives them in verse 27. The Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. What he was telling these religious Pharisees was, what, was that they had made the Sabbath into something far less than what God had intended. The Sabbath rest was to be, the Sabbath rest was to be a blessing. It was supposed to bless you. It was supposed to be a time of, of rest and refreshment and uh, from all your work. But now it had become a burden. It had become a burden to them and to others. Lastly, Jesus' Jesus' third point was in the concluding statement he makes after his answer. He tells them, there, therefore the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. You see, as God the Son and the second person of the Trinity, Jesus can command what should transpire on any given day. He is Lord. He is God. Now, once again, how is this applicable to, to us right now in the 21st century? There's a dangerous line that is crossed when the truth of God's when the, when the truth of God's intentions are replaced with man's false interpretations of those intentions. Check out the story I read that, again, illustrates this point. Once the devil was walking along with one of his cohorts, they saw a man ahead of them picking up something shiny. What did he find, asked the, asked the cohort. A piece of truth, the devil replied. Doesn't it bother you that he found a piece of truth, asked the cohort. No, said the devil. I will see to it that he makes a religion out of it. You see, truth taken out of context and twisted is the basis for many false religions and burdensome religious rituals. As this passage and as the story kind of tells us, it doesn't take much for someone or people or religious people who consider themselves holy and mighty and, and renowned and important to change something that is meant to be a blessing and twist it into this heavy chain to be worn around the neck of an honest person that is just genuinely, genuinely seeking God. Brothers and sisters, there's, there's a big difference between obeying because you want to and, and obeying because you have to. God desires for you to want to obey Him out of the joy of your heart because you love Him and you know that that obedience is to your benefit. 
when obedience is obligatory, there, there is no joy and peace in it because, because there's fear. Because there's fear of what the consequences will be. Now, us as parents, that we, we know what there's, a, there's, again, there's a big difference of when we're asking our kids to do something and we want them, you know, we want them to obey, yes, but, but we see that difference when they want to obey because they know it's good for them and because they have to. And God knows our hearts too. He knows what's in them. He knows what's going on. Now, there's not, absolutely nothing wrong with doing those things that the Bible asks us to do. Because the Bible is just full of instructions and, and how we ought to live our lives as Christians, how we ought to live our life as followers of Christ, as uh, redeemed people, as saved people. Some of these examples could be, you know, regularly going to church on Sundays. Setting aside certain times of the day to read, study, and meditate on God's Word. And even praying. Even praying before meals or, or just any time during that, the day for that matter. Whether it's in the morning or in the evening. You know, there are certain... I know in, 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 in our family, we, have, we usually pray before our meals. You know, that's something that we, when we eat, we're all eating together, that's what we do. But I also, that isn't the only time I pray. I also pray in the mornings. I pray throughout the day. I pray, I, if I remember, and this is the, probably the most hardest part, is, is trying to pray right before I go to bed. But, see, these aren't meant to be re- religious rituals. Some people will see them as religious, religious rituals. I had a conversation with somebody just the other day. They were, they said that they were speaking to someone who was, who was, who was dying. And they told that person because they hadn't gone through the rite of confession before they were going to die. They, they told that person, well, if you pray these three prayers and you do this and you do that, then it's the same thing as going through confession. And I'm, I, I'm just, I, I didn't want to argue, I didn't want to fight, but, you know, again, there are certain, what my example I'm trying to make is that prayer is supposed to be just one of those things where you just do because you, you just want to speak to your Father. You just want to talk to God. You just want to share what's going on. You see, when, what the problem is, is that when it, be, is that when it begins to be a burden to you, and it, when it begins to be a burden on others because you're imposing it on them. That's when it becomes problematic, and that's when it becomes dangerous. Being obedient to what the Bible asks us, asks of us is supposed to be a blessing to us and others. And this is a truth that I've come to find out. When faith, passion, and commitment work together in obedience to what God asks of us through His Word, it will benefit us and others immensely. It will benefit us and others immensely. I mean, there has to be that faith there. When we obey God, there has to be that faith, there has to be that passion, and there has to be that commitment. Without, I mean, without those three, then what, what, are you, what are you doing it for? Whether it's, again, it's coming to church or whether it's prayer or whether it's, you know, feeding the hungry or, you know, whatever it is you're doing. And, and of course, 
there has to be love in there as well. If there is no love, then what's the point? You're just working, you're just doing things. These are just rituals. Whatever it is you do, do it out of love. Do it out of faith, passion, and commitment. Don't allow religious duties and obligations to consume you and weigh you down. You can rest peacefully in the finished work of Christ. He has done so much for us. He has given his entire life for us. He died for us. He didn't die to, to impose things on us. He didn't die to, to bind us up into more rules and regulations. He died to set us free. He died so that we can love him freely. And that's the heart that we had to have is just to love him freely. Now, again, I, uh, I know that it's everyone's walk is different. Everyone's in a different situation. But that's our heart. That ought to be the heart in our desire is just to, just to walk, just to walk with him. Not because we have to, but because we want to. Again, when you go home and you go back to your places and you know, ask yourself, why am I doing what I'm doing? Why am I, why am I involved? What, what's, am I doing it out of obligation? Am I doing it out of rituals? Am I doing it because I feel like if I don't do it, then something bad is going to happen and you're scared? God, he doesn't want that for you. He doesn't want you to be scared. He doesn't want, he wants you just to be at peace. He wants you to be at rest. He just wants you to be just like, like, ah, yes, Lord, I'm doing this because of you, because I love you. Now, when I ask my kids to do something, I'm not going to put anyone on the spot, but when I ask my kids to do something, that's what I desire. That's what, I, that's what I want, just for them to just say, okay, yeah. You know? And I'm not talking about chores. I'm just talking about like, something that's important for their lives, something that will be meaningful in their lives. It's, I just want them to take it in and say, yes, I understand. I understand what you're saying. And I will obey because I know that you want what's best for me. And that's what God wants from us, his children. That's what he desires from us. Let's pray. God. Lord, you don't desire much. All you desire is just our love, our obedience, our faithfulness, Lord. Lord, sometimes we, we fail at even at that, Lord. We fail at just knowing and understanding that you know what's best for us. We get caught up in all these rules. We get caught up in all these ways of doing things 
just to, just because we're fearful and we've, we're afraid that you're going to punish us. But again, Lord, that's not what you desire. You want us to just freely and lovingly obey you with just a full heart, Lord. And we just ask right now that you, you help us understand this concept and you help us understand how to love you more and how to just shed away these things that we've held on to just because we've been scared. Give us the strength that we need, Lord, today, tomorrow, and just for the rest of our lives, Lord. Help us to be that new patch and that new wineskin, Lord. Help us to just forget about all these things that are just binding us down, all this, the former life, the, our former ways of, of thinking and living and Just let us live our lives with just a newness. Give us the strength to do that as well, Lord, because so many times we are weak and so many times we are attracted to going back to just those old ways, Lord. We need you. We need you so much, Lord. Thank you for being an amazing example. Thank you for knowing and teaching, well, teaching us how to respond to critics, how to respond to the detractors, Lord, all those people that just want to bring us down and just show us again, Lord, and give us the love that we need to just be that light and that example and that to others as well, Lord. Lord, we need to hold on to you. You are our strength. You are our comforter. You are our holy doctor. And we just ask that whatever it is that's, that's diseased us, whatever it is that has kept us down and, and I ask that you heal us from those things, Lord. That you heal everybody here from whatever is wound they have in their heart, Lord. Heal them, comfort them, Lord. Be that good physician to them. Again, thank you for being the good doctor that you are, for calling sinners, Lord. Lord, I ask that you bless this time, you bless this day. Give us the strength that we need throughout the week, Lord, throughout just the day, the hour, the minute, Lord. Lord, we commit ourselves to you. We want to be obedient to you.
And we ask, Lord, that you just guide us and lead us as we do. Protect our families, protect those we love, protect all those individuals that have a meaning in our lives, Lord. Bring us to that place of peace where we need to be, where you want us to be. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.